Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Today's show takes as its inspiration an exchange I had on a property forum in answer to the original poster's question, has the property ship sailed? Let's dive right in now and respond to that question, which is probably in fairness on a lot of people's lips at present anyway. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. I'm active in a couple of property forums and I do try to give back a little bit into the wider property community. And, and here is the essence of a recent exchange uh, based on a post that I decided to wade in on to offer some thoughts to help the original poster who was probably feeling a little like after the Lord Mayor's parade when he asked, has the property ship sailed? He went on and elaborated as follows. Uh, I'm new to property and I'm interested in growing a property portfolio. I'd be interested to know what people think about the reality of getting into property right now. With a rising property market and all the changes in taxes, is it a lot tougher to make a success of property without going into more and more complex and risky property strategies? Fair enough questions then I think. But before I get into the essence of my response, Let's just start off with a few pieces of data that I decided to look up, you know, just to share on the uh, on the show. First of all, let's let's have a look at some house price data. So in September 2007, which was the peak of the uh, house, housing prices before the the last crash, the average price house price was 190,032 pounds. Whereas in April 2017, so just a month ago, the average house price was £217,502. Now, that's a modest 14% increase over the 10 years from the previous market peak, which includes a very significant bust period of, you know, between late 2007 to around about 2010, 2011, that sort of time period. So, a modest recovery, I suppose you'd say, in the 10 years that uh, since the last peak. So I don't know if they've like topped out again. Um, yes, they're slightly above what the previous peak was, but a bit of headroom there is what I would suggest. Um, another another you know, set of data I wanted to pick up, a um, little bit, you know, taking a little bit further back. In January 2005, the, a- the average house price was £150,633. So um, in April 2017, the average house price was 217502 as I just mentioned. So that's a 44% increase over a 12-year time period, and that represents a compound annual growth rate of 3.1%. So just taking the dial back a couple of years, that's a point I really wanted to show there, taking the dial back a couple of years to 2005, <coughs> We can see that there's actually quite, you know, a much more significant rise in prices over that period. So the difference between the 10 years since the last um, peak and, or 12 years, which, you know, just prior to that peak is actually significant. So 
the the certificate uh, the statistic rather that's easy for me to say that gets thrown around a fair bit in property is that house prices double every 10 years or thereabouts well this appears to be true over a long period of time however you can see just from the data i've shared there that certainly over the last 10 or 12 years it's not really been the case so things have settled down a bit i guess since the last peak now, this doubling of house prices every 10 years does imply an annual house price inflation rate of an eye-watering 7% per annum. However, I'm not so sure that we should be relying on this level of above inflation growth necessarily being repeated. That said, who knows for sure. So house prices then, I'm not sure, you know, they, they, they did obviously peak and get to an unsustainable level and then the bubble popped. But they haven't necessarily gone out of control is really what I'm trying to say there. That's the that's my reading of that data. Yes, I know there's lots of you know, people, polit, you know, editorial comments and political comments and that sort of thing. And I do appreciate that, you know, uh, income multiples are very high and that kind of thing. Lending criteria is quite strict. So I'm not not trying to sort of play it down. I'm just saying that it hasn't run away and, and got into bubble territory. That's That's kind of where I'm going with it now. But let's have a quick look at uh, different types of housing tenure. So housing tenure is, you know, the way in which uh, property is, is used. So it's rented or it's owned fundamentally, but there's different types of rental. So in, in 1986, so we're taking the clock back a little bit further now, social housing, which comprises council housing and housing association provided homes, accounted for 29% of all housing tenures at the time. However, in 2014, this had fallen to 17%. So 1986, 29% was effectively social housing, uh, falling to 17% come uh, 2014. So that's quite a significant drop-off, if you like, in uh, provided housing uh, from, from the councils and from housing associations. And in fact, council housing's fallen off a cliff. Housing associations actually increase a little bit there. So the big drop is really being in council housing, as you're probably aware. However, over the same period, privately rented housing has risen from less than 8% to now over 16%. So that's doubled and there's a lot of headlines that you probably see about doubling of the private rental sector and all that kind of thing. And then people coming with an angle when they make that sort of uh, comment. It's true. The private rented sector has doubled in size since 1986. Um, but again, um, just, just before I dive into that point, um, over the same time period, mortgage-free or rent-free housing has risen from 24% to 35%. So that tells you something as well. There's a lot of people who've taken on mortgages and paid them off over that same time period. So there's been an increase in private rented housing. There's been an increase in um, fully paid off or rent-free housing. And the biggest deficit, the biggest loss has certainly been with council housing or social housing in particular. So what does this data tell us? Well, apart from the obvious fact that there's something of a generational divide and uh, with many homeowners now starting to pay off their mortgages, as I mentioned, and live either mortgage-free or rent-free, it's a, it's a mix of rented tenures that really catches my eye. So I'm going to park the generational point for a minute there. And we're just going to look at this from more of an investment proposition point of view and ignore the sort of political and social stuff for a minute. So this mix of rented tenures is what caught my eye. So it's not necessarily about buy-to-let landlords becoming greedy uh, that many, many people might focus in on. It's that the private rented sectors had to fill a void left by a drop in social housing in particular. 
In other words, people will always need rented homes to live in. It's just who provides them that's changed. And I don't see a massive, you know, reversal of this mix of, of rented housing providers anytime soon, especially with the lack of new house building failing to meet our population needs and, and, and changing, you know, family makeup and that kind of thing, co you know, also contributing to the growing annual housing deficit each and every year. So you know, I think there's an underlying um, need and there's an underlying demand for rented housing is really my reading of that. And let's let's further dig down here. Let's look at home ownership rates. Again, you'll see loads of headlines, you know. Um, I think I saw one actually doing the research for this podcast that home ownership rates are the lowest in 30 years. And um, and that's certainly true. Uh, home ownership rates were around 64% in 1986, which apparently was the last lowest <laughs> level um, from what they are now. I mean, literally this year. Uh, and whilst they peaked at around about 73% in 2008, which is obviously just the top of the market, it seems clear in retrospect that this peak was based on an unsustainable level of easy credit-based mortgage lending. And this level was therefore probably unsustainable. I'm going to say it, it was unsustainable. And whilst home ownership rates are probably going to increase once again, in fact, they, they probably should, I'll say that, they probably should increase, uh, in, in other words, the proportion of people who own their own homes versus rent their own homes, you know, should probably increase. We need to put this into context. And the context is this. We still don't have enough homes of every tenure. And so we quite simply need more homes of all housing tenures, not just for homeowners, but for renters too. In short, the rental demand will continue even with the effects of Brexit and even with, you know, perhaps an increase in home ownership rates. And that's because we need to, we need more housing overall. So yes, home ownership rates as a percentage can increase, but the rental demand can also, and the, the, the sort of housing supply of rental accommodation can also increase as well in absolute terms, if not percentage terms. So what else? Well, how about rental income? So... <laughs> In terms of rents, there's less historic data, data that's available, but it does appear that rents over the past 15 years or so have broadly tracked RPI inflation or wage inflation, uh, more or less. Um, I, I know people talk about CPI infl inflation. CPI inflation is a bit misleading, really, certainly for us as property investors, because CPI excludes housing costs. So I prefer to look at RPI. Uh, as a measure of inflation because it includes housing costs. But I also like to look at wage inflation because that gives us clues about uh, affordability or strains on, on affordability. And there's certainly been a little bit of a strain on affordability as we've been going through these times of austerity. But broadly, over 15 years, uh, rents have tracked inflation. So that tells you that, um, you know, if you like, People can afford the rents and there's going to be uh, rental increases we could probably expect, not obviously pushing pushing the boundaries too far above wage inflation but uh, or, or retail price index inflation, but there is room for rental growth. And that's key because um, there's, you know, there's a couple of ways in which we make money in property, which I'll come back to in a second. So we put all this together. There's a very strong demand for housing of all tenures, as I mentioned. And we're not building enough homes, so there's a restricted supply. Historic house prices do look as though they've been operating at hard-to-sustain levels, 
But just as the arrival of low interest rates has propped up um, affordability levels of late, in a similar way to dual income families uh, propped them up in the past, I expect further changes to help support house prices in the future as well. So one such example could be the, in, you know, the, in, the increase, if you like, of lifetime or intergenerational mortgages, just to name one but financial instrument or solution that you could see there. And that's notwithstanding the fact that um, we might be in a low or lowish interest rate environment probably for some years yet to come. Not really seeing, you know, interest rates pushing double digits anytime soon, that's for sure. So uh, low, low interest rates equals better affordability. Probably some um, developments in terms of financial you know, uh, applications or instruments like mortgages, the intergenerational ones I mentioned. So um, we don't know all the answers. We don't know what's coming downstream yet. But the thing is, things do. <laughs> so we didn't know that um, there's going to be a greater shift towards dual income families post-war. Uh, which increased affordability levels. Also, we we talked about low interest rates have been in so for like what ten years now or something like that, which which makes it more affordable to to have a mortgage and that kind of thing. And and similarly, other financial changes coming downstream. So I'm expecting things to happen. Is my point. But if nothing else, I would expect a, a more mod moderate rate of house price growth rather than a dramatic and long term seismic correction. So uh, steady as she goes is probably what I'm thinking there. So I'm not necessarily expecting 7% a year annual growth in house prices and therefore a doubling of every 10 years. And that's probably relevant to the original poster uh, and, and their sentiment. Maybe not as good as it was in the past, but pretty, st pretty decent still is what I would suggest. And if we look at rents... Um, rents should still you know, continue to track household expenditure levels and and, how, and and wage 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 inflation affordability levels and that kind of thing. So, in other words, we should still see some increases in 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 rents and therefore rental returns overall as well. So, I think perhaps there might be sort of a a shifting of the balance. Uh, in the past, probably buy to let of investors have been spoiled by capital growth uh, and have focused less on rental uh, income. But maybe there's going to be a shift towards focusing on rental returns and, you know, more modest levels of capital growth. So the mix of returns, I would suggest, is what's going to change. So my conclusion is that no, the property ship has not sailed, but it is sailing through some choppy waters. So to elaborate, here's a, a couple of key aspects of, of making money or a couple of key ways of making money through property. I kind of alluded to it already, really. We've got annual income, which is through net rental income after all costs, oh, sorry, all costs and taxation. And of course, we've got capital growth, which is realizing an increase in the property value again after tax. But the key word there being realizing. Now, bear with me. So historically, um, total pre-tax returns from buy to let, because I think that's really what we're driving at here, buy to let, have been around 10 to 12% mark, that kind of area, including both income returns and capital gains. And that's been with an approximate 50-50 split. Um, you could argue it's been higher in certain quarters and, and, and lower in, in other quarters. I'm talking about averages here. So around the 10 to 12% 12, 12% mark on average and around 50-50 split between capital and income um, as well. But what's changed most recently is taxation, uh, which has taken a bite of the after-tax returns. 
And if we assume that the future returns will largely mirror the historic returns, which, having said what I have said, is a big assumption, but it's probably a reasonable or a fair one to make, just for the purposes of this part of the discussion, then all, we'd, all that would really have changed is the after-tax position. So all things being equal, future returns matching historic returns, what's really changed is the after-tax position. And there's been a couple of big changes there. Um, and, and again, that's uh, worth, worth digging into. So the two big changes that have been uh, introduced of late are the stamp duty land tax 3% premium for investment properties or second homes, uh, which obviously increases our costs going into the deal and, and, and therefore also affects our return on investment. And then there is the finance bill clause 24 mortgage interest relief tax relief. I've probably repeated some words there, mortgage interest tax relief caps and a change you know, for, into an allowance, which could reduce our after-tax after income returns as well. So put simply, we can't really avoid the uh, stamp duty premium. So that's going to reduce our, our returns when compared to the past. Although some landlords are, are looking to try and recover you know, this extra cost by increasing rents, um, we might not always be able to do that. And so we may not, may not always be able to uh, pass on the cost, if you like, uh, of uh, stamp duty front-end costs or indeed the interest cost, uh, interest relief costs to our tenants. So we might need to look at an alternative. But it won't. You know, this increase in stamp duty won't shift the net income return on investment from what was, let's say, around about the six percent mark, because around about half of ten or twelve percent, five or six percent. Uh, so it won't shift it from 6% to 3%. In other words, it won't halve it by the extent of the stamp duty premium, the 3% premium. It's going to increase our entry costs only, but it won't affect our uh, returns. And so in other words, 6% or thereabouts might turn into something like 5.8%. I just wanted to use some averages or, or, or round numbers to illustrate the point or the impact of that change. In other words, it's not that great. It's not much different, really, if 6% turns into 5.8% because of the increase in stamp duty. Over the long term, that's probably not a big deal. Yes, of course, it means more money going into the deal, therefore more cash to find. But in terms of our actual returns on investment, it's not going to make the hugest of difference. So, you know, business as usual, almost, in that respect. But Clause 24 is slightly different. And this certainly will affect higher tax rate uh, payers. By quite a bit, actually. Um, or it's indeed, it'll push some basic rate taxpayers into the highest, higher tax rate bracket. And so it's going to affect those a fair bit too. So this is, this is all really aimed at your amateur, your cottage industry, your individual buy-to-let investor. These changes are targeting those individuals. Um, and of course, people who have you know historic portfolio built up in their individual name, particularly of a sizable limit and particularly high rate taxpayers, are understandably up in arms about this. But if you're coming into it now, as the poster was talking about, you've got an opportunity. You've got an opportunity to structure affairs in which uh, to actually minimize or mitigate some of these uh, provisions, which I'll come on to in a second. But, you know, there's a couple of ways actually around it, as I, as I just alluded to, really. One of them is to invest for our company. So the uh, Clause 24 uh, interest relief caps, so far at least, don't affect the uh, interest uh, you can claim against your tax bill if you invest for our company. It affects you if you're investing individually. So that's one thing you could change. You could also invest in higher yielding properties or higher yielding locations. So kind of alluded to with high house price growth and you know, particularly in places like London and the Southeast, you know, a buy-to-let investor 
probably they could actually probably get no rental income or very low rental income and just live off you know very lavish capital capital growth that uh, they may have experienced over the last couple of decades uh, maybe those days are gone um, uh, or, or they're not necessarily going to be repeated and so perhaps you know looking at it as a true investor or value-based investor and looking at income returns and not just uh, capital growth or making a, a little bit of a balance, let's say, between capital growth and income and not purely riding the wave of, uh, of house prices is, is a conclusion. We could also uh, rearrange our affairs. So that will be things like um, you know, looking at trust, looking at our solutions, the limited company idea that I talked about. There's a couple of different avenues that are open to us. And if you've been listening to the podcast, I've touched on some of those. But what I would say is definitely seek professional advice if you're planning to do any of these kind of structure, restructuring ideas. Um, it can get complicated and you will need somebody to guide you through it is my strong recommendation there. And do your research, do your homework, and a little caveat. Um, the other thing, of course, is that we could change strategy. And I know the original poster talked about complex or uh, riskier strategies, but not necessarily the things I'm going to talk about are not necessarily riskier or more complex as such. They're just different. So, for example, property trading is an alternative strategy. So that's buying and selling property and making money by adding value along the way. It's, it's basically a retail model. So you buy low, you sell high, you take your profit. And, and a number of people right now are doing this um, and, and they're growing the snowball, so to speak, i.e. growing their investment capital by rolling it over into another deal, into another deal and making a margin each time and, uh, and keeping it within the snowball. And I guess eventually they'll put it into assets to hold for the long term to store their wealth. So that's an alternative strategy. Um, yes, it's different to buy to let. It's more active, but you know it can uh, it can help and it can avoid some of these issues I've been talking about. Not necessarily stamp duty, but certainly the clause twenty four. The other angle is maybe looking at alternative investment locations, and that could be a different region of the country. So I kind of alluded to a lot of people would have been focused on the on London and the southeast, and maybe looking at uh, capital returns there. But if you're looking at income returns, the best places are not London and the southeast. Generally speaking, they're outside of those areas. So that's why at the moment there's a lot of interest, a lot of activity into the outer regions of the UK. You've probably seen a lot of interest in the Midlands, in the northwest, and I'm expecting the ripple out to go further southwest, further northeast, as well as we go through this property cycle and the, and the um, house prices come to the outer regions of the UK. But it could also be by country. And uh, if you listened to me last week, I talked about uh, investing in the USA, where there's double-digit returns available for single-family single homes. So um, I'm not necessarily suggesting everybody signs up to invest in the USA um, or indeed in the northeast or northwest of England. I'm kind of just saying that you, know, you can look at alternatives. You can have a mix and match of these approaches to mitigate your position. So it will need a little bit more closer attention, that's for sure. Um, no longer, I don't, I don't think the days are there anymore where we can just sort of set and forget and, and wait for capital growth, sell a, sell a property or refinance it and bag a load of cash. I think we're going to have to you know, be a little bit more hands-on, a little bit more studious, if you like, in terms of our approach. But apart from uh, those comments, I also wanted to touch on capital growth. And, and if all we do is uh, sit and wait, then we should hopefully achieve some capital growth over time. And uh, that does depend on location, though, as I'm kind of been alluding to. But we might, uh, we can't, you know, spend equity unless we release it in some way. So it's actually of no use to us until and unless we can release this capital growth. And the only way we can do that is either by selling the property or by refinancing it. 
just a little word of caution there if we're talking about refinancing. Just be careful about this uh, over-refinancing uh, that can happen. A lot of people have recommended this as a strategy. Never sell a property. Keep refinancing every X number of years. Taking out the money. It's tax-free, blah, blah, blah. It's it's a whole other topic, but it's uh, fraught with difficulty. Uh, but you can you know, look into my archives if you want to see about that or drop me a line and I'll tell you what my thoughts are. Um, it's not so straightforward as a conclusion. Uh, but capital gains tax is, is pretty much the, the same as it used to be in terms of the tax rate, although it's now less favorable, admittedly, uh, when compared to other capital assets. So there was a recent change in capital gains tax where it was dropped for other assets, but kept the same for, for property investors who, you know, so you've got to buy to let property, you sell it after a number of years, you make a capital gain and you're going to pay what you used to. It just won't, it won't be as generous now as it would be for someone, let's say, making a gain on stocks and shares. So uh, that's uh, something that's made it a little less attractive, let's say. But again, that kind of points to, well, there's no different, actually, from what it used to be. Yes, it's different compared to other asset classes. So that's something to keep an eye on. But essentially, it's, um, it's kind of supporting what I'm saying. And the gist of what I'm saying is less emphasis on capital growth more emphasis on income, therefore looking at ways in which we can uh, consolidate our incomes and we can achieve higher yields in the first place is probably where I'm going here. So the other thing I would, did want to sort of touch on here just before I dive off capital growth is that whilst you know, maybe capital gains tax is, is now at a disadvantage compared to other asset classes, the distinct advantage that it does have is it, is it still allows us to use leverage and therefore grow our returns by using other people's money, usually in the form of a mortgage, which for the everyday investor is not the case with, say, stocks and shares. And again, I've talked about a couple of angles that in my last series and, and with the Postscript episode I did recently as well with, uh, with Amit, where you can actually use leverage in a stocks and shares portfolio as well or with pensions and this sort of thing. That's kind of not open to everyday investors. That's more high net worths or sophisticated investors. It's not your everyday Joe type of investor. Um, so we, we do get some tax breaks by investing through ICEs and pensions. I'm talking about outside of property here. So if we're looking long term, then we should also consider these at least as part of our overall investment portfolio mix. I certainly do anyway, that's for sure. So I don't have all my eggs in one basket is a conclusion. And, you know, that's possibly wise for other people to consider as well. I know lots of people say property is my pension, but, you know, it's not really wise to, to leave everything in one asset class. But everyone has to make their own choice in that respect. And I guess we may see some softening to capital gains tax if, uh, or sorry, capital gains, not capital gains tax, if house prices fail to match what they've done in the past. And I've kind of alluded to that. It, you know, perhaps they won't achieve the same levels of 7% average year-on-year -year growth. Um, so, you know, there'll be some softening of the capital gains tax. But on the income side, as I keep saying, uh, despite some, some attempts to take a, a bigger bite out of our profits in the form of taxation, uh, net rental income can probably hold up well under the right property conditions which will probably include higher yielding locations and or uh, higher, you know, different types of rental. Um, so it could be, for example, HMOs or that kind of thing, along with good organization and structuring of our affairs of ownership and, 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 and tax planning and that kind of thing. So as I kind of alluded to, maybe switching the emphasis away from the whole, you can't go wrong in property, buy a property, wait for the capital growth, maybe take a little bit of income along the way and, and happy days. I don't think those days are actually past us now. 
I think it's more a case of, you know, seriously looking at the mix between capital and income returns, uh, structuring our affairs in the way that makes sense from a tax point of view. I do talk about not letting the tax tail wag the investment dog, but, you know, it's a fact of life now that, you know, there's there are some tax, you know, penalties, if you like, for doing some things in certain ways. So we need to be aware, we need to be educated, we need to take advice and uh, structure our affairs accordingly there. So I guess the long and short of it is this, and, and in conclusion, I would say this, don't sell your ticket to the good ship buy-to-let property just yet. But do undertake a little bit more research on which is the best cabin to book on the ship, is all I would say. Yeah, I know I'm making some metaphorical references there, but uh, um, I, I guess the conclusion is um, don't just uh, you know be passive. Uh, take an active interest, be educated, uh, be deliberate in what you go about doing. Perhaps look at, um, you know, not, not the easy returns, which is just going to come and land on, a, on on your lap, which it perhaps did do in the past, to be fair. There was probably a golden generation. I think the golden generation, you know, days are perhaps a little bit past us. I think we need to work a little bit harder or even smarter to look for the right investment locations, the right strategies, and to structure our affairs in the most appropriate way. So we're going to need a little bit more, little bit more knowledge rather than we used to have. We're going to need to go looking a little bit further than perhaps we did in the past. But I do think there's still some, uh, some decent opportunities without having to go too far down the complex or riskier property strategies route. And I'm dying to say, even though I perhaps am, but yeah, I did say that anyway. So yeah, I am perhaps going down some of the more complex or riskier property strategies route. But I'm a more experienced investor. I already have a portfolio. I already have this uh, foundation in place, if you like. So I think um, people can, uh, you can go about this in, in different ways. They can start down this more complex route from the beginning. Of course, you need a lot more education and need to be, you know, there's more risk involved. Or you can perhaps have a foundation of some buy-to-let properties behind you before perhaps looking to branch out in a, in a different direction later on. Okay, that's all I really wanted to say this week. I just kind of wanted to share that. It's uh, It's been top of my mind because I've been exchanging these views with this forum post. I've reflected a little bit since I made the original post. So there's a slight tweaking, if you like, of what I've said. But uh, hopefully that's been helpful to you. But remember, you can always email me at podcast at thepropertyvoice.net if you want to talk about anything from today's show or more generally in property investing. And the show notes will be over at the, uh, the website, thepropertyvoice.net. But for now, all I want to say is thank you very much for listening once again this week. Until, and until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.